This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Tevi Troy. Tevi is a best-selling presidential historian and a former senior government official. His latest book, which is available everywhere, is Fight House, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. His previous books include What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House, and Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management in the White House. He has served as the Deputy Secretary for the United States Department of Health and Human Services, which made him the COO of the largest civilian department in the federal government. Previously, he served in the White House as a domestic policy advisor, where he had relations with the Jewish community in his portfolio. So, Tevi, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thanks, thanks for having me. And it's always nice to have uh, relations with the Jewish community, but in an appropriate sense, I want to say. Of course. And the passage you chose, which is interesting. So uh, first, tell us the, the passage, Deuteronomy 4.4. 4. So if anyone wants to open their Bible, it's Deuteronomy 4.4. 4. So tell us what's generally happening in and around Deuteronomy 4.4 4 and why it's meaningful to you. Yeah, so the passage in Deuteronomy 4.4 4 is, Those that cleave to the Lord, they shall be with us unto this day. It is in the midst of Moshe's great speech. Moses gives this speech that goes on and on. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting that earlier in Shemot, in Exodus, he says, I need a rel meaning he is um, a poor speaker or he has a problem with his lips. And there was this notion that Moshe was some kind of stutter or had a lisp or something. But here he gives one of the greatest political speeches in history where he speaks basically for the entire book of Deuteronomy to the Jewish people. And he gives some some difficult words to the Jewish people, but also some messages of hope. And this is one of the messages of hope, but it comes on the heels of him criticizing them on what they did in Baal Pahor, which is when they engaged in immoral sexual practices with idolaters. And now he's saying that those who didn't do that, who did not engage in that, and those who cleave to the Lord, who stick with the Lord, they're going to bring around today. And I think, Mark, it has so much resonance and meaning because you walk around today you will see Jewish people who are still around 3,000 years after, more than 3,000 years after Moses made this comment. But you're not going to see a Baal Pahorite. You're not going to see a Hittite. You're not going to see an Assyrian. Those people are long gone. The Jewish people are still here. And I think it's in that sentence that we really see why. Absolutely. And, and just to give uh, some context on Baal Pahor, this was uh, an orgy that happened at the tabernacle. There's no analogy that we can think of which would possibly explain just you weren't even allowed to go into the tabernacle unless you were had a very special status. And here we have Zimri and Cosby. Not only do they go in the tabernacle, but they go in the tabernacle in front of everybody and start fornicating. And then our Pincus comes with his, uh, his sword and, and stabs them. So th- this was the incident of one of astonishing political, theological, social rebellion that Moses is saying this is in contrast to. So here we come to uh, those who cling to Hashem, your God, you are alive today. And Tebby's exactly right. Um, uh, all the peoples in the Bible, from the ancient Egyptians to the Hittites to the Canaanites, they're all gone. But the Jews are very much here with us today, and in a way that would be entirely coherent and recognizable to anybody in the Bible. If Moses went into a Seder, he would know exactly what was happening, among many other things. So, Teddy, how do you think 4-4 explains the 
remarkable continuity of the Jewish people. Yeah, in, in this verse, in this pasuk, the Lord is telling people, he's giving them a roadmap for what to do. Now, obviously, it's really focused on belief there and belief in the Lord. But the way that we as Jews manifest our belief in the Lord is more in terms of maintaining the traditions, maintaining the laws, sticking with Jewish practice. You know, Judaism is not a belief-first religion. Christianity is much more of a belief-first action later religion. Judaism is about the practice. And belief is obviously uh, celebrated and, and it's something that the rabbis want us to do. But the core thing that you need to do is engage in the practices. And it is these practices that have maintained the Jewish people to this day. There's a famous line from Chad Ham, a Zionist philosopher, who said, more than the Jewish people have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. The fact that the Jews stick to certain traditions has made the Jews a continuous people, again, for these more than 3,000 years. And there's a famous story about uh, Napoleon, maybe apocryphal, but you know, in the early 19th century, Napoleon is in Paris and he sees these people wailing and crying. And, um, and he asks one of his aides, what's going on? Why are the Jews there wailing and crying? And they explain that it is Tisha B'Av, the ninth of B'Av, which is a Jewish fast day and the day of mourning for the Holy Temple, actually both Holy Temples. Hmm. And Napoleon said, when in reaction to this, people who are still maintaining their tradition this long, they will surely, again, see their temple rise. And we did, 150 years later, see the, the rise of Israel, the return of Israel after 2,000 years, a completely unprecedented thing, an unprecedented event in human history. And this unprecedented event would not have happened without the ethic, without the idea that we see in 4.4, that those who cling to the Lord, who cling to the Jewish tradition, who stick with the Jewish practice, can maintain things throughout all kinds of depredations, throughout the slaughters and massacres of history, they may manage to keep themselves, keep their identities, and continue to stick around and be with us today. And absolutely, if, if you look at, I mean, take the Pesach Seder, which is probably, or certainly, the oldest continuous religious ritual in human history. Its origins is in, are in Exodus 12. And the prescription of how to conduct a Seder in Exodus 12 you can see it in every single Seder conducted all over the world to this day, from how you're supposed to invite guests to that you're supposed to invite guests to the foods you're supposed to have and the foods you're not supposed to have. It's all there. And we've maintained it continuously, uninterrupted. Pesach, you can say the same thing about Shabbat. And uh, you're absolutely right. Judaism, it's a uh, action first religion in the sense that you're supposed to do. And the beliefs often follow what you do. And that's one of the, another one of the great insights of Judaism is that if you act a certain way, you will, your beliefs will go accordingly. So the question is, how do you become, I wish I was a more generous person or a more this kind of person or that kind of person. How do I do, how do I become that kind of person? Just start acting. If you start giving twice a day, every day, what do you know? At the end of a couple of months, you'll be that generous person you want to be. Um, and of course, Mark, you are a very generous person. And I love the stuff you do with, uh, with the Jewish and Israeli, especially Israeli philanthropies. But, and I think you're, you're totally right. Also on the Pesach Seder itself, the Jewish practice is obviously, as you and I know, not adhered to by all Jews around the world at all times. But the Seder itself is the most adhered to Jewish practice. Again, this is something that's been going on for almost 3,000 years. And nearly every Jew you talk to, they, you know, they may not eat kosher and may not keep Shabbat, but almost every Jew is doing some kind of Passover Seder these many years later. And again, that's from that message in Deuteronomy 4.4. That's right. And, and wherever they are in the world, a, a Jew will find a Seder and, and that Seder host will welcome that Jew like the long lost relative that he is. Now, one of the very interesting uh, things about Deuteronomy 4.4 that we can go into is 
the Jewish, it's not as if the Jewish tradition can't be dynamic. In fact, it must be dynamic. So we maintain this constancy through its dynamism. And I think one of the most interesting things in the in the Torah, I mean, the whole thing's so interesting. So one of the most, there are a lot of contenders, is Deuteronomy 31.19, which is the only time that everybody, as distinguished from only Moses or only the king, that this is the only time that everyone is instructed to write something. And what it says is, now you must write for yourselves this song. That's not actually a song. It's an interpretation. It's in other words, you must make this your own and you must interpret the Torah and make it like a song or a poem. It's the same word in the Hebrew. Make the Torah your own. Make it a song. Make it a poem. And when you make it your song and, and your, it's directed to us, it's going to be unique. It's going to be different. No one's ever going to have done it before. And yet it's through this dynamism that we've maintained this constancy, which has led to Seders and Shabbats 3,000 years with great fidelity and incredible constancy. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And it reminds me of a great story. When I served in the White House, I was privileged to work with President George W. Bush. And on the 350th anniversary of the Jewish presence in America, George Bush went to speak to a dinner of the assembled great Jewish leaders. And before that, he said he really wanted to go to a synagogue. Mm. And so we arranged a trip where he went to the Sixth and I synagogue. There was a rabbi named Rabbi Teitelbaum, who actually teaches my daughters at the Yeshiva of Greater Washington. And Rabbi Teitelbaum welcomes in President Bush and brings him up into the beam and opens up the Torah to that Torah portion. And the Torah portion of the week was, was Shoftim, which is about judges. And it has a line in there that's similar to the one you're talking about, where it says that every Jew is obligated to write a Torah scroll. But it specifically says that a king is a also king. obligated, right? The king has this obligation. And Rabbi Teitelbaum said this to the president saying, the point of this is that the king is also obligated so that he knows and that everybody knows that they are not above the law. The Jewish law applies equally to all of us, whether you're a Kohen, a Levi, a Yisrael, whether you are a leader of the Jewish people or a follower, whether you're religious, not religious, all this stuff applies to all of us equally. And nobody is lesser in the eyes of God or in the world of Jewish halacha. So I, that story is always very meaningful to me. And, and President Bush was very open to that message. He recognized that he was he was not above the law in any way, and he had to adhere to it, just like every other leader in our nation should. Well, that's, that's such a great passage to show to, a, to a, a president, because the king is required to write the Torah by hand, and then he's supposed to carry one around with him at all times. So there, there, there's, there's one that's wherever his home or the tabernacle or the places, then there's one he carries with him to remind himself. Like I, I know some politicians do this with the constitution. You know, they'll carry around a, a pocket constitution just kind of as a physical reminder. And physical reminders is another thing that comes right from the Bible. I mean, why do we have to see for one reason? It's a reminder. It's just exists to remind. So very much like the King has to have the Torah, U.S. political leaders, some carry a constitution, observant Jews have to see, and uh, it's all about reminding yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this point about political leaders, because the reason I came to this particular passage and when I, I was ready when you kindly asked me to join this fantastic podcast, and by the way, I, I really love the podcast and some of the other episodes, and it's a great idea for a podcast, but when you came to me and asked me, I was ready with my pasuk, with my verse, because I am a presidential historian, as you know, and I'm fascinated by this notion that every four years, when you have people who are trying to become president, they get asked this question, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And when I first thought about it, I said, I don't know, what's my favorite verse in the Bible? So I, every year I read all of the Torah as we go through each Parsha. And, and I said, I'm going to read through it this year with an eye towards identifying my favorite verse. 
And I came to Deuteronomy 4.4. I got pretty far in the five books of Moses. I was in the, you know, late in the fifth book, or early in the fifth book before I came to the verse. And that verse just jumped out at me and it spoke to me. And it also has the advantage of easily memorizable because it's something we say when we read the Torah every morning, when um, right before you call people up for the Elias, you have the entire congregation says this verse. So it happens everywhere. So I already had it in mind, but obviously with, with the translation, and then I looked, I didn't take this, this Pasukan lightly because I read the papers, I read the interpretations, and I actually made it my weekly drosh that week that I give before my family and to some friends. So I put a lot of thought into making this the verse. But again, I was, I'm never going to run for president. So no one's ever going to ask me in that context what's my favorite verse. But when you came to me to ask me for the podcast, I was ready to go. So given this is your favorite verse and, and that you're a presidential historian, and so you know the past, but as a historian also, you develop the discipline to um, anticipate or rigorously prescribe for the future. When you think about the future of the Jewish people and about God willing, how do we maintain the continuity from the previous 3,000 years to the next 3,000 years? 3,000 is a ridiculous number of years to think ahead to, but maybe, maybe 300. How do you think Jews into the future are living this passage now well, living this passage now not so well, and can live it so we can achieve that continuity, whether it's in 300 years or 3,000 years? That's a great question, Mark. And look, I'm not a prophet. I don't have the answers. But I do know this, that the Jewish people have lived and survived and thrived for all these years, but they haven't always been the same number of people, right? There are some people who fall off, even in the desert, there are people who fell off and couldn't maintain, couldn't, couldn't stick with it. And you've had um, the 10 tribes went away. So you have people who go away. It's, it's a hard religion. There's a lot to do. I, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal about my mother's passage not that long ago, and I explained how difficult it is to say Kaddish every day, but also particularly in coronavirus, how you can't even get minions to say Kaddish. And a friend of mine who's a Catholic, he said, I just read about what your Jewish practices are in the wake of someone's death. Even for a Catholic, that's a lot, which I thought was pretty funny. But the fact is that not everyone is able to stick to the religion. And if you don't stick to the religion, it's kind of the, the converse of the verse we're talking about. Those who cleave to the tradition will be here with us to this day, meaning they will be there continually into the future. Those who don't stick to the religion are likely not to be part of the tradition. That doesn't mean we don't welcome people back afterwards. I heard this great story about Rabbi Steinsaltz, who just recently died. His father was a Marxist, atheist, communist, had no interest in Judaism. And Steinsaltz, obviously, was a great, great Talmud scholar. And Steinsaltz went to his father at one point and said, are you comfortable with the fact that I studied yeshiva and I know all this stuff? And the father said to him, there's only one thing I forbid, and that's being ignorant. And as long as you have people who are able to rediscover Judaism and stick with the religion, stick with the tradition, and follow the path that, that the Lord laid out in Moses' great speech 3,000 years ago, then we will have a pathway for Jewish continuity now and into the future. So in terms of, uh, um, now, of course, when, when someone falls away from Judaism, they may come back, they probably won't, and it's a tragedy. What advice would you give to people so that they stay within? And what advice would you give to institutional Judaism so that they keep people? Because it's, it's, it's a really, a, it's, it's a partnership between the institutions of Judaism and Judaism, as, as, uh, as you said, it's, it's hard. You know, I think it was Emmanuel Levinas who called us, he called it a difficult freedom. It's a difficult freedom. Like there's nothing easy about this. And, you know, we study, uh, Torah study, we have a bunch of people come now on Zoom, thank God, uh, every Saturday morning. And one of the things that keeps coming up is how complicated, how difficult, how interesting it is 
it's interesting, but it's also complicated and difficult. Like there's no like a nice spirituality aspect to it. It's difficult. Like, you know, life is full of complications and challenges and opportunities and priorities and experiences. And, and it's, it's hard to balance it all. The Torah has it all. What advice would you give both to individuals and the institutions so people don't fall out so that they stay in and that they thrive, acknowledging that we have this extraordinary tradition, but we also have a dynamic society and a dynamic life? Yeah, Mark, I mentioned earlier my late mother who just passed a few months ago, and my mother was not a religious woman. She really didn't care necessarily about the Sabbath rules and wasn't so strict on kosher, but she was a fierce Jewish identitarian. She believed in Jewish identity more than anything else. And she inculcated that idea in us and her three sons. And she was determined to have us stick with the Jewish tradition. And it's true that even today, all three of us, my, my two brothers and I, are now not only religiously observant, I mean, we're, we're modern Orthodox, but uh, we have 11 grandchildren. So my mother, at a time when not a lot of her peers were having Jewish kids marry, but also uh, marry within their religion, but having Jewish grandchildren. Uh, my mother had 11 Jewish grandchildren. And I think that is the pathway to Jewish tradition. It does, you don't have to be Orthodox. You don't have to do every one of the rules, but you really need to push forward that idea in your children and in your children's children, the importance of the Jewish tradition and sticking with it, and that there's a meaning to the Jewish identity. I think that that's so beautifully put. And there are so many ways to connect to the Jewish experience in the Jewish community. And the only mistake, and it's a terrible mistake, is to say there's only one way. Some people connect through it in the way that you, they, that you described that you, through Zionism, as you, your, your mother did. Other people connect through it through study. Other people connect through it through prayer. Other people connect through it through music. There are all kinds of ways that people can connect in a genuine, meaningful, and rigorous way and maintain that continuity. And I think rigorous is the one is the one constancy among all the different ways that with which one can connect to Judaism. Absolutely. Look, my brothers and I, we went to a conservative day school. If the Orthodox world had said, okay, we're not going to let in anybody who's in that conservative tradition, we wouldn't be where, where we are today. We have to be constantly open to people refinding the tradition. And you know, if you're a conservative synagogue, you have to be open to, find, to finding people who are willing to do it and, and welcoming them in. If you're an Orthodox synagogue, if you're a Reformed synagogue, we all have to recognize that Judaism is hard. I like the line you had from Levinas about the, the difficult freedom. And Judaism is constantly has to be on the lookout for people who are willing to go back. That's why I'm such a fan and adherent of the Chabad Lubavitch movement. They go out there, they go to random communities in very remote places, and they are willing to find Jews who, who are willing to do whatever practice at that level and welcome them in. And they're not going to say, oh, you're not doing all 613 mitzvahs, all 613 laws go away. They say, okay, you do zero now, let's do one, let's do two. Let's do three. Let's see what we can get. And hopefully you will then pass the tradition on to your children and grandchildren. And yeah, I mean, if Abad was a company, I'd buy every share I could get, get my hands <laughs> on. I mean, I, I think they, they, they really embody so much of the best of the potential future that we have in the sense that they have such integrity, both personally and Judaically. And yet they're, they're so outgoing in the truest sense and they welcome everybody in, but they don't sacrifice who they are in so doing. And it's working. That's the thing. That's why I buy all the stock because it's working. I mean, so many people are becoming attracted to that model of serious openness that that they're really pioneering. So um, I agree. And I, I think the 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 kind of the great anthem for this philosophy is from Rav Cook, um, who was a great Zionist rabbi in the early 20th century, when he said, "The old will be made new, and the new will be made holy." 
I think that's probably the formula. You know, if, if we can make the old new and make the new holy, that's kind of the formula for Jewish continuity. Yeah, and look, Rob Cook is obviously a great Zionist rabbi. And now we know that uh, some of the, you know, the, the most Orthodox traditions um, in the Jewish community aren't always so pro-Zionist, but Rob Cook was, was fiercely Zionist. And the new is made holy in terms of the state of Israel. I see the Israeli flag there Please. behind you. I assume it's uh, virtual, not actual, because I believe you're in America. But that's right. We Jews celebrate Israel, recognize how great Israel is, and at a time where Israel is constantly under intellectual assault, especially on, on the college campuses, we need to train our children so that when they go off to these schools, they are able and willing and eager to defend Israel and recognize what a beacon of hope, freedom, and light it is in a very challenging Middle East. Absolutely for Israel. And, and also, uh, you know, um, uh, we were in um, we were in a neighborhood of Israel once, and there was a sign that said, uh, "Don't." We were in a very uh, Haredi neighborhood, and there was a sign that said, "Don't have a cell phone." So, you know, that's not Rob Cook. Rob Cook said, "Make the new holy." And there is obviously plenty of new things online or otherwise that's not holy at all. But there's also plenty of things that are holy. I mean, the fact that that it makes it so much easier to identify who the stranger is and then love the stranger by giving to the stranger. It may it's holy that. We can congregate in groups and study Torah together. It's holy that safari exists. I mean, there are so many different manifestations of holiness that are only available because of the new, that this is one of the great tasks of the Jew. But like the other thing about the Torah is there would be nothing in the. So Judaism may be a difficult freedom, but there's nothing in there that can be too hard because the Torah is supposed to be a guidebook for regular people living in regular lives. And if there's anything that was too hard, it wouldn't be there because it wouldn't be a very good guidebook, but it's a great guidebook. Yeah, and, and I'm really glad you mentioned Safaria because in preparation for this, I went on Safaria, I looked up Deuteronomy 4.4, and it has a hundred different perushim, a hundred different interpretations of the verse and what the rabbi's commentary would be. It's, it's an invaluable resource and something that would not have existed a hundred years ago, like, heck, ten years ago. Right. And you mentioned that thing also about how the, the king is obligated to carry a Torah scroll with him. I mean, I have it in my iPhone, right? Great point. I've got the whole thing with me. Uh, When when my wife and I go out and uh, we have a meal, if I don't have my uh, venture with me, I have the the blessings here. So I can say the uh, the blessings after the meal just from my iPhone. And, um, you know, I I personally don't think that uh, if you're in synagogue, you should daven from the iPhone, because I think there's something holy about bringing up the sitter. But the fact that you're in a place, you're in an airport, you're somewhere where you don't have access to it, that you have that opportunity to be able to say the words there. And I, you know, my, my wife and I often we, uh, go out for coffee uh, at Starbucks and we say the blessing after whatever uh, donut we bring with us or whatever. And this guy came up to us, who was a Jewish guy, and saw us saying the blessing on Mazona, the blessing over baked goods. Huh. And here was a Jew, he had some education, but he had never seen that blessing before. And so he asked us about that. And we had the, the opportunity just to share a little Torah with him in Starbucks. And uh, you know, I, I think that we as Jews, we can't all be Chabad because that's, a, that's a, a hard life and it's, a, it's amazing what, what they do. And we're not all, all trained for it. And some people don't have the willingness, but we can all try and spread positive messages about Judaism in our, our daily lives. And I think that will help continue this tradition that we see identified in Deuteronomy 4.4. Absolutely. So, uh, Tevi, thank you for such a magnificent conversation about Deuteronomy 4.4. Now, turning from one text, the greatest text of all time, the Torah, uh, to a very different text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And Andre Malraux tells the story. He said, I just ran into this man with whom I had served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. 
So, Tevi, in all of your years in serving in government, what are two things that you have learned about humankind? Yeah. So I actually used to uh, have a saying that I would say to people in government because they would say, well, I don't understand how this guy is, you know, a deputy assistant secretary and I'm still only a special advisor or whatever. You know, the government titles are completely opaque to someone on the outside. But within there, if you're not at a certain level, a certain age, people get worked out. And here's what I would say to them. I would always say in government, there's always someone younger than you doing better, but there's always someone older than you doing worse. And I think that's a good way of putting things in perspective. You know, you may not be chief of staff at 34 like Dick Cheney was. Nobody else has done that. But that doesn't mean that you're in the wrong place or doing a bad thing. You need to figure out your own path. And you don't want to be what somebody else is doing, or you don't necessarily want to be where someone else is. You want to be where you are and where is the appropriate place for you. I think that's a good way to go through life. You can't just obsess what people are doing. And I think that gets back to the Paris Greece point, which is you're never going to be happy if you're constantly measuring yourself against other people. You need to measure yourself against where you want to go and where you want to be. And, and what God's plan for each of us is. Right. And we can't write that. I mean, we, we can do our part to advance ourselves. And when we know what our talents are, recognize them and use, utilize them. But God has a plan for us. And we just need to not get in the way. That's right. That's right. Well, Tevi, thank you for such an interesting conversation. And uh, look forward to uh, when uh, this plague is over and we can get together in person sometime soon. I'd love to see you again. That'd be great. Thank you. 